You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Remember this day, Seth? No, the Bigfoot press conference. Of course I remember it. We were not, at the time, we weren't looking for Bigfoot. That's the interesting thing about it. And we weren't looking for it either. We're not Bigfoot hunters originally. Uh, We are now the best Bigfoot trackers in the world. Well, those two guys turned out to be the best, but perhaps not in the category of Bigfoot tracking. Yeah, even though they were emphasizing the evidence they had supposedly collected about the existence of this furry critter from the Northwest. What I seen, what I touched, What I felt, what I prodded, was not a mask that was sewn on a a bear hide, all right? And what I smelt also. Well, we smelt something, and that's why we attended the press conference, announcing the capture of the elusive hirsute big guy. You know, Seth, it's one of my favorite stories of subjects that we've covered on Skeptic Check, or rather uncovered on Skeptic Check. And it also sets up, in some ways, what we try to do on our program about critical thinking. Yeah, well, when you're smelting something strange, I suppose. For one thing, you just want to check these things out. Right, and especially when extraordinary stories accompany it. I'll tell you this. Uh, I can tell you that. Well, I can tell you that we've heard a lot of extraordinary claims ourselves, enough to collect together some of our, and hopefully your, favorites. It took us a long time. We had to stop and rest along the way. But we did it. Uh, But we got it done. And so our monthly look at engaging your brains on big picture science it's Skeptic Check, Beast of. The hairier, the better. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Any other questions? Yeah. You ready for this? Well, Seth, one of our regular staples, if that's how we're going to characterize him on our Skeptic Check programs from the very beginning, has been Phil Plate and Brains on Vacation. Yes, Phil. Phil's a, a friend I've known for a very long time, and he was a local astronomer here in the Bay Area for many years. He worked on Hubble data, actually. But he noticed that a lot of people had really bizarre ideas about things in astronomy, and he began to write this column called Bad Astronomy, which he eventually turned into a book and a regular feature on uh, Discover. And he has one of the fastest critical thinking brains and one of the fastest wits of anyone I know, present company Included? Excluded? (laughs) I I would include me, yes. (laughs) Excluded. But Phil's focus often is on astronomy. And one of the more persistent beliefs that he has had to unpack has been that of the moon landing hoax. Yes. Well, the idea that we never really went to the moon, or at least no people ever went to the moon, that NASA faked the whole thing in a television studio or something else in Arizona or wherever you like. And, uh, you know, strangely enough, this is believed by, you know, more than 10% of the population. And Phil makes a very compelling argument that that idea is probably wrong. And, you know, we, we did ask people on our Facebook page what some of their favorite episodes were from our program. And this one is one of them. All right, Phil, what's the evidence that these guys offer? I mean, there's more to this than simply distrust of NASA, right? I mean, they claim there's some sort of proof. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, See, evidence would be good, wouldn't it? But uh, in fact, what they present is, in fact, a distrust of government, a distrust of NASA, a misunderstanding of science and space and physics and photography and rocketry and and just about everything else you can imagine. What what they say is, for evidence, if you look at the images, and this is this is what they all say started their disbelief. They they were big Apollo fans, and then I started really examining the images. And the first thing they tend to notice is that there are no stars in the pictures in the sky of the lunar landscape. Now, 
you might expect there would be. There, there's no atmosphere on the moon, so you'd expect stars to be brighter. And in fact, the sky in the pictures is black. And when the sky is black here on Earth, it's nighttime and you see lots of stars. But the problem is, is that it's a photograph. It's not that you're standing out there and the sky is black. If you take a photograph of the night sky on Earth, you still have to take an exposure of several seconds because stars are faint. And in fact, on the moon when they were taking pictures, the sun was up. So they were taking very short exposures, 150th of a second, a 250th of a second. And at those shutter speeds, you just don't see stars, whether you're on the Earth or on the moon. So this biggest piece of evidence that these guys always trot out is ridiculously easy to show wrong. What else have they offered? Okay, so the sky's black, no stars. That's obviously just a question of exposing for the ground underneath their feet. What else? There are actually quite a few claims. If you want to start looking at the images, they say that shadows aren't parallel, but they forget about the fact that the lunar surface is not flat. And so a shadow might fall up a hill or down a hill or perspective. As the shadows move in, in parallel away from the camera, a distant object and a nearby object, the shadows don't look parallel. But again, you can see that on the Earth. I've got photographs I've taken of trees with one near me and one farther away. And because of perspective, the shadows aren't parallel. And there are a ton of things like this. The, the flag is waving even though the moon's in a vacuum in the videos. But of course, the only time you ever see the, the flag really waving is when the astronauts are holding the flagpole, trying to bury it in the ground. And as they're moving the flagpole around, the flag is moving. And there's just tons and tons of claims like this, but they get more and more ridiculous the deeper you delve into them. Phil Plate, he is the author of the Bad Astronomy website for Discover Magazine, and that came from our Sheer Lunacy show. Going to the moon is a wild ride. I'm sure it was for the astronauts. We have been on a couple wild rides ourselves, Seth, in pursuit of stories for this program. We've stayed on this planet, but we have dealt with beings supposedly from another planet. Yes, isn't it somewhat ironic, Molly? I mean, there, there are a lot of people who don't think that uh, we ever went to the moon, but readily believe that aliens managed to come to New Mexico. To a town called Roswell, New Mexico. Roswell, New Mexico, in brief. Seth, what is the story of what happened in Roswell, New Mexico? Well, in 1947, something happened outside of Roswell. It actually wasn't in Roswell. It was in a place called Corona, but nobody's ever heard of Corona, about 40 miles to the northwest of Roswell, in which uh, something crashed. And there are a lot of people who think that what that something was was hardware from another world. Okay, Seth, let's, um, let's pull into this gas station here and, and let's get directions. Real men don't ask directions. Friendly greetings here in Corona. Hi. Hi. Excuse me, can you tell me which way it is to uh, Roswell? You take the railroad tracks down 247, and just 30 miles you turn to road 285. And is there anything to see between here and there? No. No, no gas, no restaurants, no nothing? No. Nothing. Does Roswell have any interesting history that you know of? Any sort of interesting mythology around it or anything that would interest us? They have UFOs, uh, stores there and everything. So you can buy UFOs? Yes. Uh-huh. All right, well, let's get in the car and let's do this. Yeah, city of Corona, maybe 150 people, probably an equal number of dogs. Well, here we are moving at 65 miles an hour through a vast wasteland. Oh, I could speed up a little bit. Excuse me, my mouth is full because I'm eating. Well, I guess I shouldn't take my eyes off the road to look at the bag, but the only bag of food that I could find in that last gas station, it, yeah. didn't, have, it didn't have trans fats in it. It also didn't have food in it. That's a real <laughs> problem. What's the mythology of Roswell? How did it become such a mythical place? Yeah, well, see, the thing is that if you talk to anyone who is convinced that uh, some of the UFOs that are seen are actually alien craft and you say what was the most significant incident in the whole history of UFOs since the Second World War well they will usually say Roswell I mean it is the iconic UFO story it's the most famous one and it is the one that many people apparently think is the best evidence that we're being visited was there anything particularly interesting about the site itself the actual crash site because you think if it, if it is an alien craft there might be a big 
fire or a big pit or some sort of indication that the land had been seared? Yeah, I don't think that there was. I mean, it was just lying on the ground. There wasn't a giant half-mile crater. The, the brush was not burned for hundreds of yards in every direction. Nothing like that. It was just lying there on the ground. Let's suppose that it was an alien craft. How fast do you think it would have been coming towards Earth, and, and what kind of mark would it have left? Well, that just depends on how out of control they were. Of course, if they lost control, you know, 10 miles above the Earth and just fell to Earth, I think there would be a pretty big hole. On the other hand, if they were just attempting a landing, as it were, and, you know, they were sort of gliding into the landscape, maybe, uh, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been such a big hole. So the idea is that maybe it was a, a rookie alien driver, and, and he, he sort of missed the mark, and he, and he crashed the spacecraft. Yeah, well, it could be. I mean, the whole idea strikes me as a little bit odd. I mean, presumably this craft has come hundreds, maybe thousands of light years, and to think that in the last 10 feet or 50 feet, he makes that sort of a navigation error, I mean, the guy's license should be revoked, and probably was. And then you think there might have been other crafts that actually landed safely, because he probably didn't come by himself. Well, that's always a puzzle to me, because if this spacecraft had crashed, you would think there would be others that would come to look for them at least, or others that were just here as part of some sort of visiting committee. Why would they just send one, have it crash, and then say, well, well, that's it. I mean, we've been to Earth. So, Seth, what was it that did crash in Roswell? There is a very clear explanation that points to experiments being done by the military, the Air Force, called Project Mogul, and they were designing some hardware that could be used to detect Soviet nuclear weapons tests. It's all very clearly documented and explains what happened at Roswell, and there are a lot of people who still don't believe it. Well, you know, there are some people, Seth, as you know very well, that have written us and said, we don't believe that you went actually went to Roswell, but we did. We did go to Roswell, New Mexico, for the record. We, we got into a rental car and we drove around the desert for, for a good part of a, of a day or so. And in fact, we turned that into two programs, Road to Roswell 1 and Road to Roswell 2, because there was that much to see and talk about in New Mexico about this famed crash. Really, the Roswell incident is kind of a litmus test for critical thinking and credulity. It's true, Seth, but that was an extraordinary event. And the truth is, is that we have to engage our critical faculties every day, even in something as ordinary as the advertisements that we come across every day that are trying to sell us something or other. Indeed, you can be tested on your critical thinking by doing nothing more than sitting on the couch with a remote. (laughs) Right, and we examine this in a program called I'll Buy That, I'll Buy That is what it was called, with a few advertisements of our own. We all want the best for our family. Mmm, what's for dinner, Mom? Especially when it comes to mealtime. That's why I won't shortchange my family by serving them eel that hasn't been raised on a certified organic farm. This eel's kind of chewy. Yuck. Say goodbye to tough, chewy eel that can pull the fillings from your molars. Real Neal's eels are raised on organic eel farms by loving, caring eel wranglers. No cramped breeding pools for them. Each eel is free to swim in a 40-gallon tank, is fed the finest eel meal thrice daily, and has access to chiropractic and psychiatric services if needed. This eel is yummy. Can I have more, eh, please? Real Neal's Eels, when only the best will do. Want home delivery? Just call Real Neal's Eels on wheels. Eels with appeal. Hey Seth, did you see the the ladder in in the hallway there? Because the workmen are working on the on the roof here. No, I I, I walked around it. Okay, that's why I was going to ask. Would you ever walk under a ladder? Well, <laughs> well, usually not, actually, Molly. And the reason isn't superstition. I'm just afraid they're going to drop a bucket of paint on me. It's actually practical, isn't it? You yeah. wouldn't want to walk under a ladder. This is actually a very short ladder. It was actually a step ladder, so it'd be very <laughs> hard to walk under. But it got me thinking. Um, We may not always understand the roots of our behavior and some of our patterns, and they indeed may not be rational. Knocking on wood, that that sort of thing. Occasionally I find myself knocking on wood. I don't really believe that if I knock on wood, I'll get good luck, but (laughs) why chance fate, right? Well, exactly, although it's getting harder to do so much as laminate now. (laughs) Knock on laminate. Well... So one of the purposes of our show, we, we like to try to challenge what we think, even what the hosts think themselves, and a common form of perhaps irrational behavior follows under the umbrella of superstition. For this show, you spoke with cognitive scientist Bruce Hood. He's from the University of Bristol in the UK. 
Bruce. It sounds like a rather trivial question, but I'm not quite sure the answer is so trivial. What What is a superstition? How do we define mm. something as being a superstition? Yeah, it's a difficult one. I'm, it's usually a practice or a belief which is associated with a particular routine or ritual or habit. So there are the ones that we recognize culturally, for example, Friday the 13th or black cats, four-leaf clovers, the sorts of things that you learn at the, you know, you learn from your parents or your your family. But of course, many of us have our own little idiosyncratic superstitions. These are the rituals and the things that we feel we must do in order to have a good day on the tennis court or successful uh, day at the blackjack table. So yeah, superstitions are typically their behaviors or belief patterns which are associated in in an attempt to change outcomes. You mentioned earlier that we learn some of these things from our parents. Obviously, when it comes to Friday the 13th or black cats, you're not born with that knowledge, if you can call it knowledge. Mm. But superstition in general, it's so widespread. Is it really a cultural phenomenon, or is our brain sort of wired to be superstitious? I think our brains are wired to be superstitious. Our brains are, in a sense, predisposed to seeking out patterns and seeing causality, you know, linking events together and seeing them as causally related. And we just can't help ourselves doing that. You know, I can take a handful of coffee beans and throw them on the table and you immediately see patterns. It's just the way our brains work. In fact, we can't even really deal with random events. And uh, again, it's something to do with the way the brain's operating. You, you mentioned that sort of selective memory. I think there's even a term for that, isn't there? Yeah, confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. And and that applies to a lot of phenomena. People who think that they have ESP, that's one of the most common things that I run across in my email, yeah. that they can tell, you know, in some cases where the aliens are. But, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt there was something wrong with my aunt and you know, mm. sure enough, she had died and that sort of thing. Of course, they don't report all the times when they had that dream and the aunt was perfectly okay. Yeah. Just confirmation bias. Well, and indeed, that's the, the one question I keep getting asked. Whenever I do radio interviews, and it's open to the general public. I always, you know, always take telephone calls from people who want me to explain how they had some particular instance. And of course, I can't. But you know, if you have a you know a large enough population, there are going to be lots of weird and wonderful coincidences that just can't be explained away. And people use these personal experiences, these anecdotes, as the evidence that support their belief in the paranormal. How, how pervasive is superstition? Do we have any idea? Do you know the majority mm. of uh, people believe in something superstitious? Uh, all of them, or, or is it a one percent effect? Well, it's about three out of four. The the polls have been done every five years. The pollsters go out and do this. In fact, I was just I just did one a couple of uh, weeks ago for a company, and it's the majority of people. And of course, if you ask specific questions about religion, then th- that number goes up depending on which country you, you're asking it. But it's not a minority. It's actually the majority. So, Seth, it's really a majority of people have superstitious beliefs. Well, I have to say that when he said that, I, I didn't fall out of the chair. But, you know, if you then stand up and run around the chair three times, then you'll have good luck. <laughs> well, maybe that would have been true. <laughs> but but nonetheless, three-quarters, 75% of the people living in this so-called rational world, you know, don't want a black cat to walk across their path. Knock on wood that one never walks across mine. Well, okay, questioning belief sometimes means having fun while we're doing so, even if it provokes the ire of some some of our listeners. I I think that may have been the case for a program that we did on health remedies. Well, you're talking about people's health. You're talking about the most personal things in their lives, their well-being. And when you challenge what they think might be effective in maintaining their health, well, they're not necessarily going to like you for it. Well, that's right. And in our Plain Doctor Show, we wanted to nudge people into questioning the efficacy of remedies that hadn't been properly tested. Tune in tonight on many of these same stations. A new acne treatment gets the believer into hot water on Leave It to Believer. Mom, Mom, look what Larry gave me. Slow down, believer. Wipe your feet. It's a root from the ground. Larry says it'll help my acne. He says my face looks like a pepperoni pizza with extra pepperoni. Looks like Larry gave you a stick, dear. No, Mom. All the kids say it has medicinal properties. Can I try it on my acne, Mom, please? Can I, huh? I don't know, believer. Later that evening... Mom, I don't feel so well. Oh, believer, you have a fever. Your ears are bright red. Your skin is corrugated like a Quonset hut, and is that a third arm growing from your chest? I told you, Mom, I don't feel so good. Well, believer, I don't feel so well. Find out what happens when the believer tangles with non-government-approved medical therapies on Leave It to Believer. I'm home! That's your father, Believer. Wait until I tell him what you've done. Aw, gee, Mom, do you have to? Maybe he won't notice. (laughs) Well, I hope the Believer gets better. Coming up, more of the same, only different. It's a roundup of our favorite subjects as we provide our own perspective retrospective 
without coercion, so it's elective. It's skeptic check. Beast of. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Skeptic Check, Beast of. And this is our collection of what, Seth? I think these are our favorite pieces from past Skeptic Checks. I think it's as simple as that. <laughs> the hairiest, the hairiest, the beast of. Well, one of the things we talk about on the program, the Skeptic Check program, is just critical thinking in general and being educated, period. Indeed. It's a combination of the lack of ability to analyze something coupled with the fact that a lot of people just don't seem to know the basic facts of the world anymore. Seth, why would you say that critical thinking is important? Why even do a show on skeptical thought? Well, uh, look, you know, we're confronted every day with decisions that have to be made on the basis of some sort of analysis. What you have to do is weigh what are the benefits of going down this road or going down that road. That applies to countries as a whole, not just to individuals. And, you know, if you're making bad decisions all the time, well, the end result is usually not good. Susan Jacoby, the author of The Age of American Unreason, makes the case that Americans' command of facts is in decline. Susan, the title of your book suggests that there was once an age of American reason. How would you define that? What was more reasonable in the past? I, I think there, there were ages when reason was certainly more valued in public life, but the question is not whether there was a golden age in the past, but why things aren't better now, given the fact that the general sum of human knowledge is a lot greater now than it was in the past. Well, maybe you can tell me about that moment at which you decided to write this book, because I think a war incident was involved. <laughs> well, that, that actually isn't in the book, because it sounds like it was made up, but it wasn't. It was on 9-11, and I live in New York, and I had to walk home that day 60 blocks because the subways weren't running. And like many New Yorkers, I stopped in a bar for a drink. I needed one. And there were these two young men in their 30s. Nice suits, nice briefcases, good jobs, obviously. One of them says to the other, uh, this must be what Pearl Harbor felt like. The other one said, what's Pearl Harbor? And that's not the kicker ending. The first one said, Pearl Harbor is when the Vietnamese bombed one of our harbors and started the Vietnam War. And, I mean, a light bulb didn't flash over my head, but like most writers, I kind of filed it away. Every poll shows more than half of Americans can't name even one First Amendment right. Our, our knowledge of geography is lamentable. In math, our 15-year-olds are right at the bottom of all of the industrialized countries in the world. Is there really something systematically different here, though? I mean, if you had written yes. this book... Oh, well, oh, you've already answered that question. I, I'm I, sorry. What's systematically different is this, the domination of our culture by the infotainment media. What has changed with increasing speed in the last 30 years, in the last 20, and in the last 15, is the domination of our time by the electronic media and the supplanting of the video culture by the print culture. Half of Americans under 44 didn't read any book last year. And I don't care who challenges me. You cannot be a well-educated person if you do not read. I don't, mean, I don't mean that people can't read. I mean that they're more interested in playing video games and watching people throw up on YouTube and having the TV on in their home seven and a half hours a day, which is the amount of time television is on in the average American home. That was Susan Jacoby, the author of The Age of American Unreason. One of the interviews that we did, or interview that I did, that has stayed with me ever since was with journalist Steve Silberman on the power of placebos. Now, placebo is an inert pill, often, or substance, um, often it's a pill, often it's a sugar pill that is claimed to have certain medicinal properties, but really it doesn't. It's inert. It's a sugar pill. It doesn't have any properties. Yes. Well, they're used as control substances when you're testing a new uh, pharmaceutical, right? You know, half the people get the real pharmaceutical, the other half get a placebo on the assumption that the placebo is not going to cure anything. And in the program that we did called Mind Your Body, I was fascinated by this idea that 
the context around how placebos are delivered can determine how your body responds to them. It turns out, in fact, and and there have been experiments done on this, that the words that a doctor uses to deliver a diagnosis can have a really powerful effect on your prognosis. Can you give an example? Well, uh, you know, if a doctor says, we're not really sure what you have, but it seems serious... You know, <laughs> it's like a worst case scenario because yeah, just it, it, you saying that makes me feel tense. Right, exactly, and and it also you know it also transmits the the uh, message that perhaps you can't trust this guy because he doesn't even know what you really have. You know, whereas if a doctor comes up to you and says, "Well, you know, you have this, and uh, but don't worry because we can take care of it with this, and this is what you've got to do," you know, it may seem vacuous to suggest that that can actually affect the progress of your health, but it really can. It goes further than that, and it gets even more complex because you say that the color of the pill can also determine its effectiveness depending on what it's treated. For example, if you have a headache or you need pain relief, it's better to give someone a white pill or at least a pill that has like a little stamp on it that says aspirin or whatever it may be. Yeah. Can you give the other Well, there have been a lot of studies that... um, that show that branding, packaging, size, shape, dosage, you know, two a day versus three a day versus one every hour, all these things affect the way that drugs act in our body. Uh, for instance, there have been experiments done where, where volunteers are given a couple of different pills and they're told that they're painkillers. One of them is, it says Tylenol on it, and the other is just a generic white pill. Well, it turns out that the generic white pill will not cure headache as quickly as the branded placebo that says Tylenol. And that's because we've come to associate the brand name with effectiveness. But also if you need like a, a boost, you should take a pill that's red, I think. Right, right. Well, well right. Uh, right. Well, red pills turn out to be stimulating. The, the really fascinating cultural variation in color and placebo effect is that blue pills are generally, or blue placebos really, are generally tranquilizing for most people, except for Italian men who associate the color blue with the national soccer team. And they get worked up. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you, when you talk about the extraordinary, and I think back on the extraordinary stories we've covered, few reach the level of the Bigfoot press conference. And besides the media, at this press conference were indeed this self-professed professional Bigfoot hunter named Tom Biscardi, joined by two gentlemen from Georgia who had flown in to California to present their evidence of Bigfoot which they had found in the woods in Georgia. You remember that? That's right. It was dead, by the way. They claimed. And so what did they do? Well, what anybody would do if you found a body in the woods that was supposed to be Bigfoot. Haul it out of the woods on your own and put it into an ice freezer and cover it with ice. Indeed. Uh, If a body falls dead in the woods, is it Bigfoot? Well, that was the big question. Okay, so Seth, here we are front row um, at the uh, Bigfoot press conference. Someone has already called this a historic day. Yeah, it's incredible how much uh, news value is placed on these hirsute uh, hominids supposedly <laughs> found in the wilds of the East Coast. Well, describe the scene behind us. Well, in fact, there's a whole phalanx of television cameras behind us. I mean, it's just a complete row. It's like the you know the Chinese wall of television cameras. Yeah, it, it makes you wonder who's covering the Olympics, since yeah. they all seem to be here. You know, there are international tensions. Uh, you know, there's the threat of war in Asia. But hey, you know, there's this furry dead thing that's been picked up in Georgia, and, and all these people are here to hear about it. The first person to appear at the podium is Tom Biscardi. Welcome and thank each and every one of you people for being here today. Uh, It's an honor to have you all. This whole story evolved a little over two weeks ago. These gentlemen were on a national radio show, SquatchDetective.com radio show on the internet. And the commentator, after hearing their story, asked them if they could send somebody down to verify what they had. At that point in time, they responded, well, we want somebody who actually hunts for Bigfoot. We want Tom Biscardi. So they were asking specifically for Tom Biscardi. They knew this guy was a good promoter. Steve called me. I asked them the question, do you really have the body? And they said, yes. I says, who will you invite to come down and verify what you got? They said, you. I said, I'll be there the next day. I flew in, they picked me up, and I got to tell you, it was a euphoric experience for me. I was just in shock for about four hours for what I had seen. 
Now, understand, I've been in the Bigfoot game since 1971. Off and Here's a guy who's spent years looking for Bigfoot. He's a Bigfoot years, expert. I'm very fortunate to say at this point in time, the boys have agreed and they've turned the body over to me. Starting Monday, I should have assembled some fine scientists that will do the autopsy to find the origin and death of this creature. I want to get to the bottom of it. I'll tell you this, what I seen, what I touched, what I felt, what I prodded was not a mask that was sewn on a, a, a bear hide, okay? And what I smelt also. But at this point in time, I'd like to bring out Matt Witten. Would you come up here? Hello. Um, myself and Rick Dyer, um, we're not Bigfoot hunters originally. Uh, we are now the best Bigfoot trackers in the world. But we, we had just decided that we were just going to get away for a while. We were going to go uh, up into the North Georgia mountains. Uh, we just we stumbled upon this creature, and uh, I waited with it. Uh, Rick went back and, uh, and got some help and got a truck, and we moved it out of there. It took us a long time to do it. You know, they they seem so matter-of-fact, so earnest, so honest. Uh, Well, let's take a look at this evidence. But, you know, about half an hour into it, I I noticed my eyebrows were beginning to arch a bit. Well, the other thing that convinced us that it was not authentic, but it was indeed a hoax, is when the ice melted. (laughs) And they actually pulled, what was it that they pulled out of this? A rubber suit. It was a rubber suit. And uh, it had been covered with ice. So it was a hoax in the end. Bigfoot remains an elusive creature. The only thing that could be more popular than Bigfoot. Aliens would be one. I was going to say aliens are perennially popular. Perennial. That's why I have them planted along the side of my house. And you don't have to do it every year. (laughs) But the other subject would be ghosts. Ghosts. Yes, A lot of people believe in ghosts. In fact, about half the population believes that ghosts are real. At least some ghosts are real. And not only that, that uh, a lot of their favorite haunts are, well, haunted. And in fact, we had our own local haunting here in the Silicon Valley area. Indeed. It was the local Toys R Us. Well, we had to check that out. So we went to the local Toys R Us where supposedly the spirit was... With you. With <laughs> and, and with the toys. And Mary Pope Handy, who actually claims to deal in haunted real estate and is a keeper of a website, hauntedrealestate.com, met with us and specifically talked to Seth for this Ghost of a Chance show. Well, uh, Mary, what, what's the story here? Why would a toy store be haunted? Did they, you know, sell a, a, a dead toy? What's the deal here? <laughs> no, apparently it was a ranch belonging to the Murphy family who in the late 1800s had a farmhand who assisted them who died unable to marry his sweetheart or the woman he was sweet on, um, Elizabeth or Beth, who had gone off to marry an East Coast attorney. Okay, so he was in love with some young woman who didn't return that love. Uh, Did he commit suicide or did he just die accidentally? I mean, you know, this happens all the time. I'm not quite sure why this would promote uh, the haunting of the the property. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer as to why he would haunt the place, except that he was mentally disturbed. He died in an accident with an axe, apparently, uh, bled to death, but he did, he was um, distraught because he loved this woman and she married somebody else. I can't tell you why in particular he would haunt it, but he's supposed to be the one who does. So after the building of the store, it suddenly became known as a haunted property. On what basis? How did they know it was haunted? I mean, who noticed anything and what did they notice? Starting in the 70s, late 70s, people started experiencing toys moving around, water in the ladies' room turning on suddenly. Uh, with nobody there, balls suddenly coming off the shelves, which, you know, maybe they just did because they were stacked wrong. So in the 1970s, the store was reported to be haunted. Has anything happened since? Have there been additional sightings? Is there more, if you will, evidence that this store is different than the, the Toys R Us, you know, five miles away? As far as I know, the stories have been kind of dribbling in over the years. I don't think that you could say there's a point at which it started or stopped. Um, I came in once and I did ask an employee, you know, have you ever had an experience here? And I was told, no, 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 um, I don't believe in ghosts, which is about, you know, true for about half the population anyway. So if you ask somebody who doesn't believe in ghosts, you know, they're going to say no. And if you ask somebody who says yes, they might or might not say that they had an experience. Well, Seth, there's no toying around with that subject. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you know, what was disappointing is that the ghost did not put in an appearance while we were there. One of our regular contributors to our Skeptic Check shows is Jim Underdown. He has covered ghosts. In fact, he's actually investigated ghost sightings, part of his job as a paranormal detective in a way for the Independent Investigations Group in Los Angeles. Jim Underdown does our regular Hollywood reality check on Skeptic Checks. And I just love the idea of there's Jim in the middle of the land of unreality, giving us doses of reality. And for this program, he was in his car narrating his experience in trying to change some of the teaching standards for nurses in the Los Angeles area. Check this out. I'm in my car, it's a warm day, and I've got a gallon of blood and a box of human entrails on the seat next to me. Oops, there's a cop. Better cover the guts. I just used them in a lecture my skeptics group gave called Feng Shui for Home Practitioners. The lecture was for registered nurses in California. See, registered nurses in California have to take continuing education classes to keep their licenses. But four years ago, our independent investigations group found out that registered nurses here were taking a certified continuing education course on therapeutic touch. Some people believe that therapeutic touch is a healing technique where the hands manipulate an energy field over the patient. But there's no touching involved, and this alleged energy field is not something the world of science knows about. So we applied for our own continuing education provider's license to see if the board would let us teach something as wacky as therapeutic touch, like feng shui for home practitioners, for instance. In our application, we said we'd also go over techniques using snake oil, anthropomancy, and canopiary flexibility. Anthropomancy is divining the future using human entrails. That's why I got the blood and guts from the prop house. Canopiary flexibility doesn't mean anything. We made up the word canopiary. We submitted our application for Feng Shui for Home Practitioners to the Board of Nursing with all that mumbo jumbo on it in the summer of 2008 and were actually granted a certificate to be a continuing education provider that August. So we settled in to teach our Feng Shui, Anthropomancy, and Canopiary Flexibility class. But get this. A few days before I got to toss the bucket of entrails onto the floor and divine the future in front of our first class, the board rescinded our certificate. We had already been an approved continuing education provider for seven months, but they took our certificate away within days after we sent out press releases to the media about how our bizarre application had been approved. Okay, the Board of Registered Nursing was right to revoke our wacky class, but therapeutic touch is also wacky and remains certified. We just want to see all the rubbish cleaned out of nursing education. Jim Underdown, keeping the world safe of canopiary flexibility. Coming up, how we deal with controversy and also zombies. It's Skeptic Check, Beast of... A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking. In this case, we're rounding up some of our favorite stories that we've done and some favorite stories of yours uh, because we asked for suggestions on our Facebook page. So this is Skeptic Check, Beast of... One of the issues we wrestle with whenever we do a skeptic check is exactly how to approach the material because we usually present the critical side of every issue. We don't always bring on somebody who believes in something that we think is without any scientific basis. And of course, that's going to generate not only controversy, but sometimes a lot of anger. One of those subjects is vaccines. Vaccines and autism. 
It has long been claimed, and particularly by parents of autistic children, that the condition of their child was caused by vaccinations that they were required to get as infants to protect them against measles, mumps, rubella. Otherwise known as MMR, and and those are those three vaccines together. And all of this really started with a paper that Andrew Wakefield published in the British journal The Lancet uh, years and years ago, over a dozen years ago. And since then, there's been an alarm about this uh, possible connection between vaccines and autism. But Paul Offit has been on the forefront of trying to clear up some of the misconceptions about the link between autism and vaccines. Paul Offit is a pediatrician and the chief of infectious diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. A growing number of parents are resisting these vaccines for their children. They're refusing to immunize their children because they believe that these vaccines are harmful, that they cause autism or a number of other chronic conditions. How do you begin to take that argument apart, an argument that persists even after a number of studies have refuted the link? Sure. I think from the parent's standpoint, it's reasonable to ask the question, you know, my child was fine, they got a vaccine, then they weren't fine anymore. Could the vaccine have done this? Could the vaccine have caused my child's diabetes or asthma or hay fever or autism or multiple sclerosis, whatever. Those are answerable questions. They're they're scientific questions. They can be answered in a scientific venue and and largely have been. So the way that you would answer that question is you would look at hundreds of thousands of children, for example, who received the MMR vaccine, compare them to hundreds of thousands who didn't, make sure that those two groups are alike in all other aspects with the exception of receiving the vaccine to see whether the vaccine put one at greater risk of, let's say, autism. That particular question, whether MMR causes autism, has been looked at in 12 separate studies and all have found the exact same thing, which is that MMR doesn't increase your risk for autism. So I think, I think for example, using that as an example, uh, the public health or academic community does respond to parents' questions. I think the frustrating part for those of us to try and communicate that science is that despite the science, there are some who simply hold on to the notion that vaccines have caused harm, much as one has a, a religious belief, uh, just sort of unwavering in the face of contrary evidence. But what is going on then in the cases where parents do report? Um, Because these stories are are quite compelling when you hear them, that the child is is vaccinated and then within hours, in some cases, uh, develops a fever and then gets very, very sick. And a child that used to be very active and have a lot of energy becomes very listless and then is diagnosed soon after with autism, for example. Right. Well, well, these disorders or diseases have to start sometime. They they usually start in the first couple of years of life. And because, you know, about 90 percent of children in this in this country get vaccines, there will, by definition, be a statistically a certain number of children whose symptoms will begin soon after vaccine. The story that my wife likes to tell, who's a private practicing pediatrician, is that, you know, she walks into the office one day. Um, she's helping the nurse give vaccines. It's a weekend day. There's a four-month-old sitting on her mother's lap. While my wife is drawing up that vaccine into a syringe, the four-month-old has a seizure, goes on to have a permanent seizure disorder, epilepsy. Well, if she had given that vaccine five minutes earlier, I think there's no amount of statistical data in the world that would have convinced that mother of anything other than the vaccine caused the problem, even though it didn't. Well, there's been more to this story since we did that interview, and that is that the study published by Andrew Wakefield in The Lancet that supposedly made the connection between these vaccines and autism has later been retracted by the journal because the data apparently were not only not reproducible, but indeed had been tampered with. Well, that's right. It it turned out that in 2009 that Andrew Wakefield had actually fixed his data. And indeed, Seth, the study that initiated this scare many years ago has since been retracted. We'll continue to keep an eye on, on that story. But another story that is persistent is that of climate change. And again, this is one of the thornier issues that we've covered on this program. It's a skeptic check topic because there are many people who sort of brush off the whole idea. They say, oh, come on. Um, You know, this summer was colder than ever in in the city I live in. So obviously, all these people yelling about climate change, the sky is falling. Come on. It's just not true. So climate change is a big subject, and we decided to tackle it. And I had the privilege of speaking with Stephen Schneider. He is no longer with us. He was an environmental biologist internationally recognized for his work on climate research, a participant in the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, He was known for his public outreach on the subject of the warming planet and its consequences, and he would step without hesitation right into the fray of the controversy and defend the integrity of the science. And he'd been doing this ever since the 1980s. I'm Stephen Schneider, and I'm a climate scientist at Stanford University. 
Stephen, when the big snowstorm hit the East Coast this winter, some commentators and politicians pointed to it as evidence to refute global warming. And, you know, on the face of it, it does seem to be a contradiction. I mean, if you hear that the Earth is warming up, yet you look out your window and you see this huge snowstorm, it's confusing. Well, of course it's confusing if you sit there and live from storm to storm. Uh, What about the fact that the Olympics took place in one of the warmest ever winters? That no more proves global warming than a cold winter in a snowstorm, and Washington disproves it. It's nonsense. It would be like trying to figure out Willie Mays, a famous baseball player, shows you my age, lifetime batting average value, how he did in August of 1958. It's what we call in climate noise. It means absolutely nothing. In fact, what happens in one decade is virtually irrelevant because climate change is a 30-year or more process, and on that scale, it's inexorable. And there is confusion, I think, between weather and climate, and sometimes those get conflated. Well, indeed. We, the, the, the joke in, in the climate business is that uh, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. So short-term variability can sometimes go completely against long-term trends, and that's why you have to average all around the world and over a long period of time. And when you do that, which is what the scientific community does because it's responsible in its statements, it finds unequivocal evidence of warming over the last century and a half and very likely evidence of human activities creating it over the last 50 years. And the evidence for climate change, does it solely rest on temperature data? No. The evidence for climate change is based on many factors. You can start with climate records, and people do. But climate records have problems. You have to remove the city thermometers because that gives you an artificial warming trend. But what happens when you move the thermometer out to the airport? That gives you an artificial cooling trend. All that has to be corrected. The climate community is not stupid. It knows that. And it's been making these corrections for years. Then the land is only where most thermometers are. The land is, is only a third of the world. What about the oceans? Well, there's lots of ocean temperature measurements. They are all warming also, not as much as the land, which, by the way, is forecast by the computer models. And as a result of that, you put all this together, and you see a pattern that IPCC labeled as unequivocal warming. But that's not enough. We can also say, well, if you don't want to use thermometers, if it's warming, shouldn't plants be blooming earlier in the spring and birds coming back earlier for migration? And that's the work of Terry Root and Camille Parmesan, two ecologists. And what they've shown is, yes, indeed, if you statistically correlate all the records of the change in ecological systems over the last 50 years, 80% of them are blooming earlier and the birds are coming back earlier. Nobody who is honest can reach a conclusion that there's nothing going on. They're simply cherry-picking the tiny exceptions and claiming exceptions disprove rules. That is not how science works. Science works on preponderance of evidence. Stephen Schneider from Stanford University. He was a great champion of the science of climate change, and sadly he died about five months after I interviewed him. Meanwhile, the controversy continues, Molly, and uh, to be honest, we get a lot of letters on this subject. Often they are quite irate. This is one subject that whenever we broach it on The Skeptic Show, we get a flood of mail in response. Yes, indeed. It sounds like a no-win situation for us here because, indeed, we're attacked from both sides. We're not skeptical enough or we're too skeptical. All right. Here's a subject that caused some disagreement even with the big picture science staff. This was in-house disagreement. That's okay, right. the, the, the question was whether or not this was a news story. Yes, walking, living, dead. Which sounds like an oxymoron to me. How can you be dead and also living? But how can you be dead and also walking? I don't know. (laughs) In other words, zombies. Zombies, yes. did a whole show on zombies. We did a whole show. We sent uh, Gary to be made up to look like a zombie, and he walked around for a couple of days like that. Nobody seemed to notice. But I personally happened to have liked the zombie show. I thought it, it had a certain je ne sais pas quoi, but my producer here doesn't entirely agree. Well, I wasn't sure what the science angle was, but I have to say it was a pretty popular show. Now, I don't know what the critical thinking skill is that we need to employ to The Walking Dead. I don't know if there are many people out there who actually believe in in zombies. But one of the approaches that we took was to talk with uh, Brendan Riley. He's an assistant professor of English at Columbia College in Chicago about the literary perspective towards zombies and why it is that they persist in our imagination. I think lately we've seen a significant rise in in the popularity of zombie movies, and I'm inclined to attribute that to the the sort of postmodern identity crisis 
that occurs with the age of the Internet, that as electronic information has destabilized our connection to our personal identity and that we're losing control of who we are online or we're living more and more of ourselves in online spaces like Facebook, the feeling of being out of control comes into play. You hear about people who um, get in trouble because a colleague or a friend or in my students' cases, it would be you know another student that posts a picture of them from a party and so we, we have these online identities that are part of us, but also out of our control. And I think what makes zombie movies so enduring is this eternal fear of being out of control of yourself. Because in zombie movies, there's, there's certainly the fear of the corpse, what Freud would call the uncanny. It's something that's human, but isn't quite human. And in these movies, they always make this argument. They say, don't worry about shooting your mother, because it's not your mother anymore. But I think what makes a, a zombie movie so frightening is that we really believe somewhere in there that is our mother or that is ourselves. And so what's scary about the idea of becoming a zombie is being in your body but not being in control. Well, those relentless, humorless dead bodies strolling around town was from our show, Waking the Dead. Yeah, those guys kill me. <laughs> or they would if they could, right? Zombies, do they try to kill people? Yeah, they try to eat them. Well, just don't bring your brain to work and you'll be okay. Okay. Wow. That's a setup for a joke. But, um, okay, I'm not yes, going to say it. You haven't the mind to say it. Well, Seth, I think that was a nice a sampling of some of the topics that we, we cover on Skeptic Check. The reason why we do this show is we think it's important to have critical brains that are functioning and applied to science. There's no doubt about it. The difference between science and so much other activity that Homo sapiens routinely engages in is that science requires you to consider things as objectively as possible. Look at the evidence. If any of these subjects whetted your critical thinking appetite, you can find the shows on our archive. Just go to our page, bigpicturescience.org, and peruse the archive. And many of the suggested interviews came from you, suggested on our Facebook page. I hope that you heard the one that you liked. By the way, if you like us on Facebook, well, it helps us keep up the momentum of bringing you great, hairy shows. That's right. So please go to Facebook and click Like Us, and we can keep bringing you these episodes. Meanwhile, we'd like to thank our larger-than-life production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance and Jay Weiler were not skeptical about their talents at all. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes. You can also find it through the link on our website, bigpicturescience.org. If you're a podcast listener and you prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And now, we'll let Roswell take it away. Well, Molly, it's time to hit the road, head back to Albuquerque, a night drive through the desert. Yeah, it's a beautiful night. Seth, I wish that guy would dim his high beams. Yeah, they are bright. Must be halogens. Why don't you flash them? It's still too, it's still too bright. Is that even a car? It looks like the lights are lifting right off the highway. It's, it's rising into the air. Look, look, oh, it's above us. Seth, maybe you should stop the car. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.